You are listening to Talking Machines. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Neil Lawrence. And Neil, you just got to spend another fabulous week at uh, Mars, which, and I should say at Mars, not on Mars, right? Where you got to see some really cool stuff. I did. I just, uh, it's, well, it's unfortunately not the whole week. It's basically two and a half days. But um, yeah, it's just the most amazing collection of people talking about sort of cutting edge stuff. And yeah, I just got back from that great experience. I particularly enjoyed, we had, I mean, there was Daphne Kohler was speaking, we had Peter Abiel, which was great, great for me, but of course, they're closer to my area, so I know more about what they're likely to say, but I think one talk I really enjoyed was by Vivian Say, I think it's Say, it's S-Z-E is her surname, she's uh, from uh, MIT, and she was focusing on hardware implementations of machine learning, in particular, energy-efficient hardware and what's great about the conference, as someone sort of said to me afterwards, is the way the talks are given is a sort of combination of, yes, they give oversights, but two, you understand the depth and complexity of what, what they're doing. It's sort of like, it's like Ted with an edge, I would say. So anyway, Vivian's talk was um, about efficient compute. Uh, and the main issue that she was talking about was that the... Within the processor, actually, the, the, the main energy cost is with moving data around the processor. So the theme of her talk, and it was a number of different things, she looked at vision systems, and robot navigation systems, and had a lot of collaborators locally at MIT and robotics um, as well. But the main thrust of her talk was building layouts of the processor that take into account the way the algorithm is going to want to access data to get significantly improved energy efficiency. And I mean, she was talking sort of two orders of magnitude, better energy efficiency, which was just, I mean, just very cool, very interesting. But also the way the repeated patterns of the theme is bring the data closer to the processing elements, whether that's ALUs or whatever. But the sort of the interesting thing was the extent that you need to take account of the algorithm in doing it. And then she's producing very small, very energy efficient chips. And actually, um, well, we were lucky enough also to have the authors of the the Expanse. Oh, cool! It's the it's two guys who work under one name, James A. Corey, right? Yeah. Now, do you want to know the the embarrassing bit about that? So here's a really embarrassing yes. thing. Okay, so Neil's embarrassing story. So like, I'm sort of supposed to be hosting the table, and I am, and I know a couple of the ta- people on the table. So there's uh, uh, Mike Massimino, who's the astronaut. And he's sitting next to this guy called Ty Frank, and it says on his badge, The Expanse. So I'm sort of like trying to get everyone talking. So, so Ty, tell us about The Expanse. You know? And so he gives his response, oh, fourth season, eh? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Anyway, he was lovely. I mean, he wasn't probably too offended. You know, to be frank, he hadn't read any of my papers. So, so there you go. You know, there you go. <laughs> anyway, it was a great conversation. And it gets to this point where Ty Frank is telling Mike Massimino what would have happened to him if he'd ever gone into a vacuum in space. Because like, it's like, oh, you know, I don't know if you remember, the, like, I can't remember the Schwarzenegger film where it's to do with Mars, like his eyes pop out and everything. And, and Ty's like, no, no, that doesn't happen. It happened to a NASA astronaut like in the 1960s and Ty like knew all about it. The, the basic message is, like, so, so um, I don't know, I think as long as they get you out after a minute, you're conscious for 15 seconds, I think, is, is if I remember correctly, this is what Ty is saying. And I think it's in one of the episodes. So you're conscious for 15 seconds. And then after that, you, you go unconscious. And then I think you have a, a minute or two minutes sometime before you start getting uh, brain problems. But anyway, so, so, so Ty sort of said, well, you have to get the air out of your lungs, right? And um, he said the other thing that will start to happen, like because of the vacuum, is your your eyes will start to boil. So, so, I, so, so, so what made me realize is that the right response, if this happens, is to sort of partially open your mouth and, and close your eyes, perhaps put your head back a little bit. So I just want anyone to know if they ever see me doing that in a talk, like if they ever see, oh, look at Neil, he, he seems to have his eyes closed, his head partially back and his mouth has dropped part open. I'm merely practicing in case I should ever find myself in a vacuum. It's just space safety. It's just space safety. I'm just regularly, I'm looking forward to when I go to Mars and I want to protect my eyes and evacuate my lungs correctly. It's just space safety. It's not the rest of the panelists. The funny bit was, um, so Mike Massimino didn't kind of fully believe him. 
So um, we had to get, there was another astronaut on another table. We had to get to come and help us out and confirm it was true. Well, very handy that you're in a situation where you can just be like, oh, let's find the other astronaut to confirm this. Total sidetrack. That, that nothing to do with machine learning. That's just Neil embarrassing himself. And then they were very nice, both both the authors, uh, Daniel and Ty. And actually now I'm, re- I'm like halfway through the first book and because I was told not to watch it until like, well, you can watch it, I think. But anyway. So I'm 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 halfway through, or like fifteen percent of the way through the first book. So uh, that was very interesting. Um, but I enjoyed very much Vivian's talk. I also we had um, Rebecca Kramer Botilio from uh, Yale was there. She was talking about soft robotics. Now she's really interesting. Her group they had a really interesting set of demos. They're a sort of materials group, and a lot of what they're doing is I would say building interesting composites around um composites some of which like change behavior on heating due to um the sort of uh, fibers of the composite melting and reforming that was very cool but some of which can sense softer movements so they use them they deploy them in soft robotics like things like grippers that um are inflatable so the idea is these can sort of be packed down and then inflated now why do i find that particularly interesting but i kind of like soft robots because they look like fun cuddly toys like you know you can never imagine the terminator film with a sort of if he's like all puffy what when we talk about soft robots yeah well a big teddy bear like <laughs> like if the robot from the future comes back and it's a sort of large teddy bear oh my god speaking of which we had uh oh is it dennis murren who did who's from industrial light and magic who did all the effects for that film and like he's just telling us about the effects and it's just like what well, the thing i thought about it is it was just like Listening to him talk about that for Terminator 2, he said that one of the things he was most excited about that he did was Terminator 2. But one of the first things he did was Star Wars. But in both cases, well, particularly the Star Wars case, it kind of sounded, there's so many similarities between trying to do that and a research project. He said like George Lucas gave them an immense amount of freedom to do the shots. He just roughly described it and they would sort of try and do it. And he's like, yeah, and sort of like three months before the end, we had like one shot, you know, and then they had to, and then they all pulled it together in the end. It sounded so much like a sort of, um, I don't know, it's two years, but like a PhD or a long master's project where like, you know, you're sort of pulling it all together. I can't imagine it, what an amazing life he had, you know, sort of he, and then he was right at the forefront of CGI as well. So he was there with all the models and these sort of, I think for then it was all about clever camera angles and moving cameras in clever ways and model building and but then he was you know i think he led industrial light and magic through to where it started taking adapting to cgi and terminator 2 was the first big cgi film so that was that was very cool as well not nothing to do with machine learning he thought uh, everyone would would say that they i reminded them of some british person that they knew and in his case it was his brother-in-law and someone else said you're like richard hammond i thought off top gear i was so upset <laughs> so this- that is so. Do you get that a lot? The one that you just you're the British person, and the people are like, "Yeah, I think you're like this other British person that I know." Sometimes when it's like a, a British person, if it's like you're like John Cleese, I'm like, "That's fantastic." <laughs> In that I, you're you're I have tall, the admiration male. for John Cleese. I will even do a silly walk for them. <laughs> Very good. Oh no, Neil! Now the cat is out of the bag. If you if you flatter Neil, he will do a silly walk for you. Only if you call me John Cleese, not if you call <laughs> oh, okay. me Richard Hammond. Okay, all right, all right, all right. There's some there's some boundaries. There's some boundaries. But I wanted to return to the soft robotics for a minute because um, I feel I I don't I have no understanding of robotics. We're talking about soft robotics. Is it literally that they're soft? They're like plush? like Yeah, they're like cuddly toys. I mean, like genuinely. Like they had these, so Rebecca had these actuators that you could wrap around. She had a, like a toy there. And then there's sort of pneumatics. So I think pneumatics is quite often used. It means they're very pliant. So I think the, the, the challenge with it is getting accuracy. A lot of robotics, so certainly industrial robotics. Rebecca had like this great slide that we're getting about presentation of industrial robots working with very, very high precision on sort of a manufacturing line. But that's all sort of pre-programmed and it's, there's no humans in there. So um, pliancy, like a hard robotics of often precision of movement is accompanied by if you push back, the, you know, the robot will put its screwdriver there whether you're standing in the way or not because it's got its tight sort of classic cool control. Whereas these soft systems, number one, the accuracies aren't there. Often they're using pneumatics. So if you've got pneumatic controllers, then the air in those controllers is is 
you know, it, it, it can compress, unlike hydraulics. So if you push back against the object, well, you're just compressing the air. So that's much more like interacting with another human entity, where if you push, you don't feel like you're pushing something rigid. Now, that's got great advantages if these entities are interacting with humans. And, you know, indeed, so Rebecca did this demo, and it, it's so soft, the demo, you know, you know, she's just pulling, she created, she had a small robot arm, and then she converted it into a little worm that could crawl forward. But you just look, at it looks like fun play stuff. I mean, if they decided to make, you know, I don't know, the Terminator a soft robot, which it just wouldn't have... You know, it, it just wouldn't have been frightening. It looks... A teddy bear with a laser cannon is less intimidating than... If you don't get to destroy the teddy, I suppose that's, that's kind of worrying. Now, now yeah. I started thinking you know, there's, there's some horror film with a doll or something. But no, no, it didn't look like oh, that. Oh, no. No, it's just like, uh, these just like toys. And, you know, and they're fun, you know, and you can sort of interact directly with them. I think the challenge is around the precision and how you control them. So if you, like the inflatable robot arm they had was i think it was made originally by someone else but rebecca was putting sensors on top of it in order to control it now the result isn't the sort of high precision control that you expect in say you know a large automotive plant but it, it's interesting you know they'll often show pictures in soft robotics of the actuators these end effectors picking up like fruit because of course they're not more compliant with the fruit so you, you know with a hard sort of like the terminator you know probably the terminator himself never manages to eat a very ripe tomato properly because every time he's picking it up he's like again i have crushed the skin <laughs> or whatever hey he doesn't speak like that no that it's because it's schwarzenegger hasta la vista tomato you know he doesn't doesn't sort of come up but the soft robot you know it's sort of like and Rebecca had these great sort of points around 55% of all animals or something, some, some percentage like that, uh, have no hard structures inside them at all. Of course, they're supported by their environment. So she's sort of, sort of referring to how many sort of motor systems around us are actually soft. That was combining with two thoughts, because, of course, now I'm reading The Expanse. And what someone... Um, Paul Viola actually asked uh, Daniel Abrams about the way people would evolve differently if they were born in space. It's fascinating. I am a huge fan of the expanse and just the idea that the people who have been born in the asteroid belt can't like go to a planet because they would be crushed by the gravity simply because their spines are so elongated. Amazing. Yeah, that was so that so apparently that's not on the screen, but I'm already seeing it in the book. And so that was with Daniel, the other author. And then this sort of conversation between Paul and Daniel starts around like, so even the viability of conceiving in space like came up. And the most amazing thing is we had like Metin Seti, who's an expert on nanorobotics. I'm like, I know the guy who can answer this. So I bring Metin in, who's talking like, well, wow, all the Reynolds number effects of robotics at the nanoscale. Like, because at some scale, sort of gravity just disappears disappears as a significant force so i know metin he does like these robotic swimmers things that his, his his ambition is to have robotics that could go in the bloodstream and sort of have medical things and he, he wasn't speaking but he does that sort of stuff so i knew he knew all about the mechanics of egg and sperm meeting and and that that sort of stuff and i was saying no no that should be entirely possible let's get metin let's get let's find out and i met him it turned out he thought about it a bit so there's this long conversation going on about that but yeah, the thing in my head then when I'm reading this, the book on the plane, I'm, and then I was combining Rebecca's talk with uh, what uh, Daniel and Paul were talking about and thinking, well, it, you know, would we just evolve? Would you just take all your bones out once you're floating around in space? Right? Yeah, right. And you're just a big jelly lump. You could just become like a sort of jelly lump. A soft lump, robot. Like a soft robot. So I was thinking about soft robotics again. We can all become a fully soft robot. <laughs> That's excellent. It was it was a tough it was a tough couple of days. You can see I did a lot of very technical machine learning. But of course, the thing I was thinking about, oh, the way to control these is Gaussian processes. That's what's in my head. Because one of the things that is you just you need a much more flexible nonlinear controller around all this stuff. So partially you see Rebecca's sort of um you know, I'm quite enthused about what she's doing. What she doesn't really know is partially I'm thinking this would be great for Gaussian processes. Like any machine learners constantly, really one should be controlling this with Gaussian processes. Everyone else is saying, oh, that's cute. That's cuddly. And I'm thinking, wow, <laughs> what a great application for Gaussian processes. Let me just get in there with some Gaussian processes. Yeah, yeah. Be great. Awesome. And there were good sensor things as well. So there was some stuff, uh, haptic stuff. I always like love a bit of haptics. Heather Culbertson was demonstrating a sort of haptic 
uh, sleeve where um, she had this amazing sort of experiment she'd done, which was like conveying emotion through touch, right? So people are asked to touch each other and give a touch that conveys happiness and stuff like that. And then she sort of recorded them and actuates them down your arm. She said, when men touch men, there's not quite as much variation, apparently, in the touch as when it's not a male to male. So if you used to say convey happiness with your touch, we just go poke. And if it's like convey sadness, we just go poke. Which I just took to mean that men are extremely sensitive at picking up touch from other men. The nuances are, are so tightly packed. Yeah, because clearly they're expressing the emotion. It's just they're very capable and sensitized to it. That, that was my conclusion from what she was saying. But she had this amazing sleeve that sort of, I don't know, it felt like you were genuinely being touched. I guess because your arm, the sensitivity of your arm to touch is not, I, I don't know, the resolution. So even though there weren't many, many actuators, it, it kind of, you, with the way that they designed it, it sort of felt like a hand was moving down your arm or something like that. Wow, that sounds incredible. Well, we will have a link to the website for the Mars conference and a couple of links to the different papers that, that Neil has mentioned. We'll also link to The Expanse because it's a sweet book. And maybe if we can find some reputable knowledge about what actually happens to your eyeballs in space, we'll be able to provide that to you too. What we should do, actually, we should have a link to the ReMars website because Mars is like a sort of closed event. But uh, they're in June this year, they're running ReMars, which is a sort of large-scale uh, open invite event. Well, open invite, so it's an open conference, open version of ours, much bigger. Excellent. Well, we will have a link to both Mars, which you can't go to, and ReMars, which you can go to, where you might be able to have some of these, these fascinating conversations like Neil has been having on our website, thetalkingmachines.com. This week's listener question on Talking Machines is, again, about OpenAI. We talked about them recently, and it's it's sort of a it's sort of a rehash of the same question that we had before, but let's go for it. You recently spoke about OpenAI and what's happening there, but there seems to be more stuff going on. Can you please walk me through it and tell me a little bit about what's happening? So, Neil, I don't know if you've been reading the news, the coverage around this, but OpenAI, um, which was formerly... Uh, a nonprofit organization has now announced that they're restructuring themselves as what they're calling a capped profit company. And that's one that cuts returns from investments past a, a certain point. So I, I think it's really interesting. My question is, is like, this research is so resource needy, right? You have you have to have time on, you know, computers and, and just like huge resources to be able to throw out these questions. Is it possible for new organizations to organize in a way that we usually associate with altruistic organizations like nonprofits and things like that? Or do we have to sort of look at the way that these companies and organizations are forming and, and just assume that you're going to have to go in a different direction if you're pursuing this original resource and you don't have the like huge infrastructure of a university behind you or something like that? Do we have to start thinking about this in sort of like a third direction or... What? I don't know. What was your reaction to this news? So my understanding, I think that they've they've got a for-profit spin-off. Hmm. Yeah, and I, I don't fully understand the implications of what that means in terms of uh, uh, how it feeds back into the original OpenA. But I think Sam Altman is moving from Y Combinator to be the CEO of the spin-off. So OpenAI LP. I guess that just shows the, the dangers of doing what we're about to do, which is jump to conclusions about what things are going to be. Because when it first launched, I guess everyone, people wouldn't have predicted this is what's going to happen. It's maybe part of, here's a sort of wider phenomena that, that concerns me in the AI space is as we move into with these algorithms and the things they can do, one of the things that always strikes me sort of complex systems is that they need um, part of the thing. There's often like this desire to move fast against uh, sort of more conservative ideas. So when you look at our democracies, you see institutions like the justice system, which are, you know, and should be slower to react perhaps to whatever's going on in society. They contain some human memory of 
sensible ways to behave, what we consider ethical standards, and there are professionals, lawyers, and judges associated with those institutions. And I think in all functioning democracies, they have a sort of functioning justice system that maintains sort of independence from the government. When you look at some new field like this, we're missing those type of institutions. Like we don't have, what would a not-for-profit be in this area? Well, it would presumably be something that had a mission that was well understood and accepted and people had signed up to when there were trustees and potentially a mission that wasn't changing across a sort of two-year time frame. And I don't, I'm not blaming OpenAI for changing their mission. It's just, you know, it takes a while to understand what that entity should look like and a while to accumulate the sort of, people think of it as a, you know, small C conservatism and might argue it's a bad thing. But, you know, I think the way society moves forward is the sort of, in a combination of that type of conservatism and, you know, let's just keep doing what we've been doing before alongside what we would consider sort of more small L liberalism. If you go back to some foundation of our politics 200 years ago, those, those separations were much more cleaner and they weren't necessarily so associated with left and right. It's just one, the Tories in the UK were the conservative group. They were associated with monarchy and the Whigs were the sort of forward thinking group that eventually became the sort of founding fathers of the United States. There should be a constantly a tension between those two points of view. And at the moment in AI, I guess what's going on is we don't have the right rallying flags. We don't even know what those institutions look like. So I guess when OpenAI formed, maybe people felt that's going to be this thing. I, I wasn't sure what it was going to be myself, but it, it just seems very difficult to create that type of entity overnight because, you know, we don't even have the right and I wouldn't say it's even really AI. My concerns like are much more around, uh, less around the singularity. It seems to me OpenAI came into building being on the back of an idea that we were going to create robots that will transform the singularity. And to me, that always felt a little bit of a misunderstanding of what was much more likely to happen. And I think since then, we've seen a lot more questions raised around the things that are much more likely to be going on, which is about what personal data means, what it means to be sharing information on such a large scale, what it means to potentially be able to influence populations very quickly. People have already always been able to do this, but you know, journalism itself has standards. I had a very interesting conversation with uh, Bill Thompson from the BBC, who was talking to me about at the BBC, what it means to have, you know, they have a charter and it talks about their journalistic standards. And journalists as a profession have a charter around what they do and when it's permissible to do things like uh, breaking the law, i.e. not revealing the name of a source in the name of their journalistic practices. That can only happen because there's an established profession and some sort of agreement that that's an okay thing. It takes a while to work out what those sensible, reasonable ideas are. In the modern era of digital journalism and social media and everything else, most people aren't even in the position where they understand those balances or when it might be right to share, to break the law, the official law of the land in an effort to reveal some deeper corruption. These are sort of difficult trade-offs that um, now, I guess, are being devolved much more down to the individual. So it strikes me that it was going to be difficult for any single institution to deal with those and we should still be looking to create institutions or revolve institutions in, and having a big open debate about what, the, what we do want out of uh, these technologies. But that's very difficult to understand when the technologies are moving so quickly that society is evolving in response and we don't have time to sort of see the long-term effects of any sort of single change we might do. So, I mean, going back to... OpenAI as, as an entity itself, does it surprise me that they want to get more access to, um, say, some of the corporate funding? I mean, maybe that is, we see it's very difficult for governments to fund to the level that venture capitalists are funding to at the moment. But my warning on that would be easy come, easy go. The, the VC funding that's flooded into the area, I think this year in particular, we're going to see that that that's a little bit harder because you've got your initial seed rounds where companies are getting valued at sort of 
whatever, they're getting sort of a few millions in funding. But those companies now, if they're looking to expand in value at a high level, there'll be a number of people who are looking for more like hundreds of millions in funding. And people are going to be a little bit more skeptical around what your income's looking like, what your balance sheet looks like, and whether you really genuinely have a business that, I mean, if you're funding it to the tune of hundreds of millions, then there's a the potential you're valuing at billions. I, you know, so, so is OpenAI just going to be another fish in that pond? Because I think, uh, you know, it, it, I think I've referred to it before, the Robert, Robert Solo's solo paradox. It takes much longer than people think to integrate these technologies into those parts of society where in the end they will have the most benefit. And I'm talking multiple years. You can create cool apps and games and stuff pretty quickly. We saw this back in the early 80s. You know, my world changed utterly when the personal computer was invented with computer games and so on and so forth, but it was a very small part of the economy. And, and Solo is talking, I think, in the mid-80s when he say, we see computers everywhere apart from in the productivity statistics. And, you know, arguably that didn't really happen until maybe the late 90s. I don't know what an economist would say. So you're talking 20 years, potentially, before you really start seeing effects. And if what I, I keep thinking of our trigger point as 2012 in terms of AI being demonstrably successful in new areas, which, well, AI machine learning, I would say, you know, particularly deep conf neural networks in areas that they hadn't been seen before. So if you take that as the trigger point, then, you know, we'll still be dealing with the implications of this in 2032. So these valuations that people want to place, it's, it's clear to me that it's less about the technology and more about how you're integrating that technology in, in, in existing ecosystems. So companies that crack that will be well ahead of companies that create novel algorithms. But that doesn't mean that there's not a market for novel algorithms. Of course, there is as well. So I think, to me, it's fascinating seeing these very, very smart people who've been very successful in a number of areas trying to turn their head to that. I don't see easy solutions, but of course, you know, we could all be surprised. The companies I'm much more excited about are ones that um, have a particular brand new application area that is enabled by AI or very often sensorics. I think that we totally underestimate the extent to which it's the sensors that drive things forward. But in all cases... The key thing for me is that you're developing technology in the context of a domain. I'm very nervous about the idea that you can sit there in your room thinking up amazing things, you know, that you're just going to deploy and change the world. If you haven't developed alongside some, some domain, I think you're really going to struggle. So, so any general AI company is going to have to overcome that. And that would be true for this new open AI spinoff and any other of the general AI. I mean, you know, you can get bought by a larger company and assimilated. That's definitely happened. But if your main business is just going to be selling AI, I kind of really want to know your route to market. So I'm, I'm playing, pretending a VC now. If I'm going to invest my 100 million that I don't have, my monopoly 100 million in one of these companies, I really want to know their route to market and how they're going to convert that technology into something that makes money rather than something that's just cool. But we are seeing a lot of that as well. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we'll have a roundup of some of the reporting on OpenAI and a couple of the other pieces that are where people are thinking about what it means to, to take this step on our website, thetalkingmachines.com. This week's guest on Talking Machines is Jasper Snook of Google. And when I got a chance to sit down and talk with Jasper, the first thing I asked him is the first thing we ask all of our guests. How did you get where you are? I did computer science as an undergrad at the University of Toronto. Became super excited about machine learning after taking Jeff Hinton's neural networks class. <laughs> he has a way of convincing you that that's... Uh, that what he thinks That's is right is what you should think. <laughs> you know, but actually, he just won the Turing Award, so I guess he was right. So maybe he is a genius and we <laughs> yeah. should all pay attention to him. Yeah, I think that was back in like 2004, 2005 when he was evangelizing neural nets. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I totally drank the Kool-Aid. <laughs> um, desperately tried to get into the, the master's program at at U of T. Mm -hmm. I did that in applied machine learning. Nice. Applying machine learning to assistive technology. So helping elderly and disabled people with 
with artificial intelligence. Oh, that's really interesting. So I was building an anti-collision wheelchair. Wow. And a fall detection system. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. The idea was that like we would track your your parents around the house Mm -hmm. and if they fell down, computer vision system would automatically detect. That's great. And and like alert an ambulance or something. And I feel like that would be kind of amazing for also detecting things like accidents on factory floors and all sorts of stuff. Yeah, totally. My guess is that kind of stuff is being done a lot now. Mm -hmm. Probably with very different technology, probably convolutional networks instead of tons of SIF features and things (laughs) we were doing back then. (laughs) Yeah. And so after that, I became more and more excited about general machine learning and less about applications. Spent lots of time in the machine learning group at the University of Toronto with uh, with Rich Zemmel and Jeff Hinson. I became super excited about deep learning and autoencoders. So like basically Frankenstein-y kind of models throwing together A plus B plus C and putting it all together in one model and seeing if that would work. Nice. And so I had put together like a Gaussian process autoencoder, which sounds more sophisticated than it is warranted, probably. It definitely sounds like it's held together by gum a little bit. <laughs> it definitely was. Yeah, I was doing this with with Ryan Adams and Hugo LaRochelle, who were both postdocs at U of T. Yeah, we made a sufficiently complicated model that we realized that if we could tune the hyperparameters of this thing, we would definitely get state-of-the-art. And so I went on a bit of a tangent looking into ways to tune hyperparameters. And that was really the foundation of of everything afterwards. I forget how we came upon Bayesian optimization, but basically a methodology for using statistics to to guide your experimentation. We realized that that was just so much more exciting than the kind of Frankenstein models we were building. And so we started writing papers about how to tune your hyperparameters in, in kind of a more principled way. That led to a paper called Practical Bayesian Optimization of Machine Learning Algorithms, where we did Bayesian optimization to optimize hyperparameters. That became a big part of my thesis. Mm-hmm. Uh, graduated at U of T in 2013, mm-hmm. took a postdoc with Jeff Hinton, then took a postdoc at Harvard with Ryan Adams. We were working on Bayesian optimizing everything in sight, essentially. Let's see. And then, uh, of course, machine learning algorithms, a uh, variety of biology things. And we started a company on the side as well. Mm-hmm. Turned out the, the company kind of exploded in a way to, that we didn't expect. Originally, it was Ryan, Hugo, and I. We brought Kevin Swirsky along and and Alex Wolschko. Who, for full disclosure, we should say that is my partner. That's right. And we all got together on Saturdays and, and wrote code to build a, an engine for doing Bayesian optimization in the cloud. Yeah, there was a lot more interest in that than I think we anticipated. <laughs> We ended up being acquired by Twitter, so I spent a year there as a, as a research scientist, and then moved to Google Brain in, in Cambridge here as a research scientist as well. Fantastic. And so tell me what, you, what you're what you doing at Google Brain now. Are you still doing tuning, or are you back to thinking about applications? What are you finding really exciting now? I'm doing a, a lot of things, probably too many. I'm still very excited about machine learning broadly, mm-hmm. but also applications, so my two main things at the moment are I'm working on an application in biology with the Broad Institute where we're trying to understand the effect on cancer tumors of CRISPR gene knockouts. So if we can do gene editing on tumors, can we kind of figure out which genes are most influential for specific kinds of cancers? On the machine learning side, at the moment, I'm really excited about uncertainty. So we've become as a community, really good at predicting classes, for example. We can definitely tell, we can classify whether there's a cat in a picture. We have awesome cat classifiers at this point. But we're very bad at quantifying uncertainty. So you get these pathologies where you show a cat classifier, say it only knows about cats and dogs, and you show it a monkey. It might say cat with very high probability. And so I'm really interested in trying to understand how to imbue our models with a sense of uncertainty. So I don't know if it's cat or a dog. So how, so when we use a word like uncertainty, that for me has a very specific definition, but how, how should we think about the specific definition, like an actual definition of uncertainty for when you have a universe that is only made up of cats and dogs. And then all of a sudden you want to introduce the idea of like, I don't know, hamsters or something like that. Oh man. 
Yeah, that's a very difficult question to answer. <laughs> uh, along with with my collaborators, we've actually spent at this point months deliberating what the meaning of uncertainty actually is. I think the community actually doesn't have a, a really strong definition for uncertainty. Mm-hmm. We don't have strong metrics to quantify uncertainty either. We just know it's something that's important. And and I think we have a rather vague notion that we would like to make sure that our models are able to say, I don't know. With some sort of per- percentage or, or be able to say. So do you think that, I mean, in a field where when talking about different things, people often mean like a variety of, of things, do you think it, that settling on a standardized definition is something that we want to aim for around uncertainty or even something that we should try to aim for? Or should we just keep working to try to get some sort of level of, I don't know, quantification (laughs) workable in the models that we're creating? Yeah, that's a great question. I do firmly think that we should nail down a definition. And actually, I think our field in particular is, is lagging in that respect. This debate with my collaborators has, has led us into, uh, as well as a lot of soul searching, a lot of literature reading. And there's some really fantastic literature in other fields, particularly in weather prediction. So you might think that weather prediction is not the most rigorous, but in fact, they've, they've really thought very carefully about what it means to be uncertain. And in particular, how do you quantify uncertainty and how do you score it? And so they have a literature on on what is known as proper scoring rules. Basically, how do you say that my uncertainty is better than someone else's uncertainty? Yeah. yeah. And for them, it, it's super important because they need to rank forecasts effectively. So they get a whole bunch of probabilistic forecasts, and they know if it rained or if it didn't rain or if it snowed or if it didn't snow, and they need to be able to say, okay, Katie's forecast was better than Jasper's forecast, mm-hmm. and what is the the quantification of that? in a way that neither Katie or Jasper can cheat on the on the given metric. Wow, that sounds so entangled. So given the given the sort of like survey reading that you've been doing, are there ideas that you feel like would port over nicely or is there going to be like have are you going to have to do like translation work to to be able to take the the weather forecasting ideas and bring them over in sort of a usable or functional way? Uh, that's a great question as well. I think the, I think we certainly have to do some translation work. Digging into this literature is not super straightforward. And <laughs> and as with all fields, they have their own vo- vocabulary and language. But certainly, I think a lot of the math translates directly, and we should just start adopting that as a community. That said, I think also uncertainty is is very often not useful in its own, but is always in service of some downstream task. It could be as some measure of, I don't know. And we do a bunch of that out of distribution detection. Mm -hmm. So I can say, oh, this is not a dog or a cat. It's something else. But it could also be decision-making and reinforcement learning. It could be active learning, which is what data should I gather to make my model better um, because I'm uncertain about the classes of certain data? Uh, it could also be Bayesian optimization. Where should I look to find the maximum of, of some function? And it's not clear that we want the same notion of uncertainty for every one of these tasks. And maybe to to make things even more complicated, we do have different terminology and notions of different types of uncertainty. Uh, We have something called aleatoric uncertainty, which is uncertainty that cannot be reduced by gathering more data. And you can imagine that as being like measurement noise. I have noisy sensors, maybe a thermometer that gets plus or minus one degree. Mm -hmm. And no matter how many times I take the temperature, that uncertainty is going to remain. And then epistemic uncertainty, which is reducible uncertainty, Mm. which is just pertaining to the data that I have. Like I could gather more data and that will reveal uncertainty. It's almost like a fog of war kind of thing. You know, if you ever play like board games or computer games, you have uncertainty about places you've never seen before. But if you go and and get data about those places now, that's no longer uncertain. That kind of uncertainty is the kind of uncertainty that's really useful for exploration and reinforcement learning. So like trying to figure out whether this Atari move is a good idea or not. Anyway, long story short, 
it's very complicated. Yeah, a lot of moving parts, yeah. to say the least. Yeah. So are you working? I mean, is it when I think of weather prediction, I immediately think of meteorology. But is it meteorology that you're that you're looking at for investigating these ideas of uncertainty in other fields? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So this is absolutely predicting whether it will rain, how many inches it will rain. Mm -hmm. It's not, I don't think it's the same as what we get in our weather forecasts on TV, but certainly it's super valuable to, to nail down which forecast is the better forecast, which model should we trust, which ones shouldn't we trust. Yeah. And the rules that they kind of put down tell you not only which models are better, but uh, also tell you like which models you should mix together ensemble to get a, a better kind of aggregate prediction. So what do you think given, so in the field around these questions of uncertainty, what do you feel like is the next sort of accomplishable thing that people will be able to agree on and move forward from the kind of like the next handhold? Um, also a great question. So I think, I think first we should really nail down metrics. Mm -hmm. We need to be able to know if we're doing better or not. And for that, we need to, to agree on, on what we're measuring. Then I think we need benchmarks. So problems we agree are, are hard and yeah, exactly. And if we do better, then we're advancing the field. And then there's some really interesting threads moving forwards. I think Deep neural nets are, are, the, are the thing people are super interested in these days. Mm -hmm. They're used in production all over the place and, and are super highly parameterized, complicated models, which means that it's really hard to figure out uncertainty in that context. I personally really like the Bayesian viewpoint, which is effectively you have a model of the world and you fit it to some data and you would like to actually fit not just one set of parameters to this data, because there are lots of parameters that will fit the data reasonably well. Instead, you would like to fit all possible sets of parameters to the data and weight them by how good they fit. And perhaps by a prior where you're saying maybe weight the smoother models or the simpler models higher. I certainly believe in that philosophy, but it becomes really, really difficult when you have many millions of parameters, yeah. Um, you can imagine how quickly things become intractable <laughs> when you're saying, oh, I'm going to think about every possible model, every possible setting of many millions of parameters. And that's something that our community is certainly struggling with mm -hmm. quite a bit. And we actually are also struggling in how exactly to frame that question, mm -hmm. particularly in the form of priors. So traditionally, Bayesians would say, I have a prior over functions. Mm -hmm. I think the function that fits my data, so maybe I'm measuring rainfall and it looks like a sinusoidal curve over mm -hmm. time or something. I'm going to say that I have a prior that it's smooth periodic functions, but we have no idea how to do that with a deep neural net. Well, we know is the weights of the neural net. Right. And there's so many of them that we don't even know what it means to put a prior on them exactly. Mm -hmm that corresponds to the actual function that it ends up modeling in, in the real world. So I think a really exciting and promising line of research is, is trying to pin that down. So what does it mean to have a prior over neural networks? And how can we express this prior in terms of something a little more intuitive than what we do now, which is like Gaussians over, over the weights? Are you particularly are you particularly excited about like an attack on that question a particular attack on that question i'm not sure we've totally solved it yet mm -hmm. there's some really exciting work coming out out of various groups uh so in toronto roger gross and his students have some nice work on pinning down priors and variational inference mm -hmm. where they're saying okay well we could actually say we have a prior over functions gaussian process prior and minimize the distance between our model and that prior through some really complicated math, Stein variational inference. I think that's super cool, but probably way too complicated for us to use in practice for the kind of models that, um, that are actually used these days. Mm -hmm. Beyond that, also, there is a paper in iClear, I believe, with Sebastian Nozin and Miguel Hernandez-Lobato, 
and a couple of their students are called fixing ver- variational bays or deterministic variational bays, mm-hmm. where they do some really crazy, awesome math to change what originally was a, a sampling scheme into something deterministic. The details are, are not super important, but basically they took a really complicated scheme where you would sample a model, update weights, sample model, update weights, which was super slow and expensive and figured out the math to not have to do the sampling step, which is super cool. Definitely worth a read. And then the a second part of their paper that I think is really promising is they actually empirically fit the prior. So they said, well, we don't know how to specify a prior a priori really. So instead we're going to adjust it with the data, something called empirical base, which is maybe not super purist, but are they adjusting their definition slightly? Is that it? Or uh, no. no? Okay. All right. Uh, it depends who you ask. Okay. The most fundamentalist Bayesian will say that's fundamentally that's not, that's not, not what Bayesian. You're talking about. Okay. Yeah. But I think they are, are hitting on what we need to do, which is we just don't intuitively know how to set a prior, but we have lots and lots of data. We know how to learn from data. So we should probably learn our priors from from data. So um, I'd like to take a little bit of a left turn. Tell me about the work that you're doing with at the Broad, doing gene knockout with CRISPR in terms of tumors sounds both science fiction-y and pretty amazing. Yeah. So I'm, I am super excited about that project. The Broad Institute, which is a fantastic genomics institute uh, in Kendall Square. I believe it's a collaboration between MIT and Harvard, actually, and it's where Eric Lander and his teams have sort of built their castle of amazingness. Yep, absolutely. They are experts in in CRISPR, which is gene editing technology. It's super fascinating, but effectively we know how to, or they know how to co-opt the machinery of particular bacteria in our bodies, uh, which fight viruses effectively. So particular bacteria in our bodies hold carry around virus DNA. When they see the virus DNA, they go and they attack it. CRISPR, a major innovation is replacing that vi- virus DNA with something else and using that to edit our genome, which is super cool. And so this project, what they did was they took cancer tumors, which are replicating effectively in a, in a Petri dish, so cell lines, and said, well, if we can use CRISPR-Cas9 to knock out a particular gene, we can measure whether the tumor keeps replicating or if it stops replicating. Mm. And so they did a lot of these targeted gene knockouts on a bunch of cancer tumors and measured the effect. So the collaboration that I have with them is to fit machine learning models to that data and try to see if our machine learning models can figure out stuff that's going on that that we didn't previously understand. Nice. Around the reaction of the tumor to the the knockout section or Exactly. Nice. Yeah. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah, yeah, it's super exciting. I am am still quite naive in terms of biology, but I was very naive coming in and just assumed that you might have some behavior where there was a smoking gun gene that obviously caused this particular cancer, but in practice there are lots of genes working in concert. Effectively, we have a very complicated soup of proteins going around our cells, performing function, and they all affect each other in complicated ways. And the hope is to use machine learning to figure out how these are all interacting. So you've been doing a lot of diving into various areas in which you like don't have a PhD, <laughs> and I assume don't have a master's degree. I don't know what the rest of your undergraduate was like, but like, so how do you, and I think this is something that's sort of required of more and more people in the field, how do you remain flexible enough to sort of parachute into all these other fields and do the kind of learning and absorption that's required in order to work with that information or even just like find the fundamental ideas that are going to be necessary to port over? That's a that's a great question. I, I think you give me a little too much credit there. I think <laughs> it's not quite as nuanced as that. The way it usually occurs is a biologist, for example, comes up to me and is like, hey, I have this machine learning problem. I ran a random forest and it did okay. Do you think you could do better? And then, of course, I'm like, yeah, obviously. 
and I go in with a lot of arrogance and you tell them to stand back from the computer right exactly (laughs) just give me the data laptop in 10 minutes and yeah and then you know six months later I find that I have to really kind of try to understand what CRISPR actually is (laughs) what particular genes are doing it always ends up being that clearly the problem is so much more nuanced and Mm. complicated than I originally thought. But I really, really love learning new stuff. And so especially working with world-class biologists, you kind of get, get the best teaching possible. And it's really interesting to learn about how our DNA works, uh, how genes work. And so I love diving into those kinds of problems. That said, they, uh, as I said, there's always so much more complicated than, than I originally thought. And I certainly have gained a, a major appreciation for scientists in the, in the physical sciences. It's a, it's a topic that we talk about a lot these days of how to be an effective collaborator, right? Because of course, if you don't have data, it's very hard to make your stuff go. But uh, what do you think would be your sort of first and foremost recommendation for someone who is interested in starting a new collaboration with someone. They they have a very excited partner, but they sort of like maybe don't speak each other's languages. How do you get started? Yeah, that's really tough. So having gone through this a couple of times now, there's no replacement for face-to-face communication and a lot of it, I think... One of my first collaborations in biology was with David Kelly, who was at Harvard in the stem cell biology department. He's now at Calico. Mm -hmm. And he came to, when I was a postdoc in Ryan Adams' group, he came to our group meetings having some some knowledge of machine learning and kept asking us to work on this biology problem. And eventually we were like, okay, hey, what are you doing at our meetings? But then it turned out he had a super interesting problem and he's super smart and knows so much about biology that that I think we didn't have an appreciation for. But certainly the first couple of months were me kind of telling him uh, about machine learning models. So set your dropout to this. You got to anneal your learning rate. And him telling me about biology if from the very beginning, like this is what nucleotides are. This is what transcription factors are. This is kind of what we're looking for. But yeah, it was just, I guess, a lot of back and forth communication. I guess it's almost like being an infant, really, where you have no idea how to speak and people keep talking to you and saying stuff. And eventually, slowly, you kind of assimilate the language or you learn enough to pretend like you know what you're talking about. <laughs> I like it. Whether it's DNA or ball, if a person points at it and says it enough, eventually you'll you'll get, sort of get the basics. That's really interesting that you mention face-to-face communication, which I think is getting more and more rare these days. And people think that they can just sort of like achieve what they need to through you know, Google Hangouts or, you know, FaceTime. But I guess there's sort of no replacement for like getting beers and doing the foundational sort of camaraderie learning where you're teaching each other the basics about the things that you're both really experts in. Yeah, yeah, I definitely agree with that. Being at Google, we video conference a lot. You spend much of your day in a, in a conference room on video conference. And really, there's no replacement for just being in the same room at the same time um, and communicating face-to-face. Or, yeah, going for a beer, getting dinner, something like that. So earlier, Jasper, you and I, we were talking about iClear. And then later on this summer, we've got ICML coming up. And uh, I should say that I am the press chair with Jen Wartman Vaughn for ICML this year. And then, but you were are an area chair for ICML this year. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. From my understanding, um, you guys just had um, the, the deadline for reviews just passed. So how was all of that? How is that going? How is that happening at ICML this year? Yeah. So, well, first of all, I just want to say Thanks for being an awesome press chair. I realize that that's not the most wonderful job in the world. I just want people to communicate openly and actively about machine learning and artificial intelligence in a way that reflects the reality of the research. No problem. Yeah, you're a pro. Yeah, so uh, I'm an area chair for for ICML. That means that I oversee the decision-making process for a set of something like 20 to 25 papers. And there, there are... 
I think that this is something that people should be reminded of often, especially those people who aren't sort of part of the the big conference funnel of doing work for free for the conferences yet. There are a lot of people reviewing a lot of papers to try to sort of get down to the ones that are going to be part of the proceedings, right? Yeah, absolutely. I'll leave it to the to the program chairs. <laughs> they always love to announce how many submissions there were on the first day of the conference. But there are many of thousands of papers submitted. Each paper needs to be vetted by experts. There are actually not that many experts in our field, so it's been a challenge getting enough people who have expertise to to vet all the papers. Yeah, yeah so every paper gets, and for ICML, actually, we wanted to make sure at least every paper got three reviews. Wow. Most got four. So that meant for every paper, corralling four reviewers, right. getting four people who are expert on that particular topic to read the paper over, hopefully carefully, and give their expert opinion about whether the paper is, is strong enough to get into the top tier conference in, or a top tier conference in machine learning. Nice. And I assume it's double blinded, right? Yes. So it's double blind. That means that the Reviewers don't know who the authors are, and the authors don't know who the reviewers are. But how does that, how does that, from the reviewer side, I mean, you wouldn't have any control over it from the author side, but with archive, how does that work if you're a review? Are you just like, I will not go on archive for one month? I promise. That is pretty much exactly <laughs> how it happens. The The promise is to, to the best of your ability, try not to find out who the authors of a paper are. Got it. In practice, yes, people totally I feel like often know. Hard, and especially since if you're having people who are experts in a subject review papers that are coming in in that subject, if you are one of the people who has knowledge around this, you're probably getting people who are emailing you stuff that's on archive that would be of interest to you, which might be the area that you're reviewing under. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's even worse than that. I once had had a paper that had appeared in a Wired article, and then it was pretty hard to, <laughs> to pretend we didn't know who the author was. But yes, we really would like to mitigate bias as much as possible. And certainly... There is a strong push in machine learning at the moment to try to open ourselves up to newcomers to the field. And so then it's super important to to try to not bias ourselves towards people who are established. So yeah, we, we take the, the blindness seriously, but unfortunately in one direction it's often violated. In the other direction, obviously authors should not know who the reviewers are. Yeah. That right. could that could have some some negative consequences. A, chi a chilling effect, if you will. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Something that's interesting about ICML is that reviewers know who each other are, and the mm -hmm. area chair uh, knows who they are, and they know who the area chair is. Right. So there is some amount of accountability, which I really like. Nice. So your peers you know have a community. That... Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Some small subset of your peers know if you did a terrible job or not. Or they appreciate that you did a really good job. That's great. That's great. So we're running on both shame and glory at this point. That's right. So I've been hearing a lot about meta reviews, and I sort of don't 100% get it. Can you walk me through what's going on there and how you guys are using them this year? Yeah. So that's very uh, significantly on my mind at the moment, having written meta reviews until late in the night on Friday. Oh, no. Yeah, they were due on Friday any, anywhere in the world, which meant all of, yeah, a lot of the senior machine learning faculty and researchers working late until uh, into their Friday night coming up with uh, with decisions. Yeah, so the, the AC, I see it as a very heavy responsibility because you make the ultimate decision about whether a paper gets in or not. Mm -hmm. And that means carefully weighing the reviews from the reviewers, but also knowing when to trust the reviewers and when to see that some are, are maybe biased, mm -hmm. maybe some are just not well calibrated. Yeah. Some people are just always overly negative, some are overly positive. And so it's certainly not a question of just taking the average review score, but it's reading the reviews very carefully. Authors get rebuttals, so you look at the author rebuttal. Mm -hmm. Often authors will complain. Oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> you want to defend your work. And we take those very seriously as well, so weighing those those as well. And 
then ultimately weighing all these different things and coming up with a decision. For a lot of papers, it's it's a little easier. Mm-hmm. So it's, a lot of papers clearly are, are just not quite ready for, for publication. And then some are obviously just awesome. Yeah. And those are great, except... Nice. Um, yeah. And then the majority of papers, I think, are, or many papers are along the borderline. And there you really need to take a really close look, figure out what the strengths are, what the weaknesses are. And then for a bunch of them, actually read them yourself, mm-hmm. get an idea of, of what the contributions are. Mm-hmm. And yeah, then either accept or uh, the dreaded reject. Right. So, and then, so meta reviews are your judgment on these 25, 25 papers that have each had four reviews from area experts. And then I'm sure each one has an author rebuttal, at least if not, you know, for, for everything that a reviewer has to say about the paper, I'm sure that the author themselves has something to say about that as well. So, so this is a, it's a big responsibility. I mean, basically you are curating what the field is going to see in this area until the next large conference about six months from now, if not the next time next year, sort of like setting the opinion for at least 12 months. Yeah, absolutely. I guess for me, it definitely weighs on on me quite a bit because I, having been on the other end, you know, it's obvious how important papers that these conferences are to people early on in their careers. And how devastating rejects can be. Mm-hmm. So it's something that was your work for for maybe months that is then on the chopping block and gets criticized. And so, yeah, it's clear that it's an important decision, certainly for the for the authors and for the conference. We need to uphold the quality of the conference. It's one of the top ones. And we need to uphold the, the quality of the literature for the field as well. And so, so yes, it's, it's tough figuring out where the bar is, what is good enough, what's not good enough. And often what the level of burden of proof is. So how much empirical evidence does a paper need to show that their method works or how much theoretical evidence or does it need theoretical evidence or theoretical justification? Maybe I should say. And so I know that a, a number of conferences have started to try to experiment with ways for incentivizing good reviews. Not and, I, and by that, I don't mean positive reviews. I mean, thoughtful reviews. So do you think that, I mean, given the huge number of papers, which only seems to be growing, and the limited number of people with the expertise to actually review them, do you think, do you feel like that's like a feasible way to head? Or are we going to have to sort of like rethink the way that we that the conferences approach this question like fundamentally? Yeah, that's a great question too. So I actually have written a couple of position papers on that exact subject. Oh, you don't say. That's right. Yes. With Dee Scully and Alex Wilcho. And we made some non-controversial proposals, one of which has been adopted by by most of our top conferences, which is really great, which is that we should incentivize reviewers by giving the top reviewers either free mm-hmm. or reserved registrations for the conferences. Nice. So the conferences are, are sold out super fast, and we would like people who actively participate in a, in a serious manner mm-hmm. to have preference to go, right? So yeah, I think ICML is doing that again, but certainly NERPS did that, and I believe iClear did that, where the top reviewers would get either free or or reserved registration. That, I think, it has been very positive. Certainly, it incentivizes people to work a little harder on their reviews. But I do think we can go a bit further. How? I think that's really up for debate. D, one of our co-authors, really believes that we should... Well, I, I think I agree that we should pay reviewers. It's a little shocking, right? So the whole contract is that we ask experts in machine learning, an extremely in-demand field, and we say, please do free labor with no accountability and no reward. And and then we're shocked when people do a bad job at it. I think it's it's important to think about how we can incentivize people in a way that makes sense. 
maybe paying them is the right way. Maybe it is not the right way. I do think registrations is uh, is a good way to incentivize, but maybe it's it's not enough. We'll see. But yeah, we're as ACs, we're now certainly rating everyone's reviews, and there are some really great ones. Yeah. There are a lot of pretty terrible ones. So if you're a reviewer and you're listening, please do a good job. The The AC certainly appreciates it and we definitely take it to heart. And I think a lot of people don't, don't appreciate that if you do a good job reviewing, the ACs take note and the ACs are, are senior people in the field yeah. that will, will remember your name and remember that you're expert in a particular subject and that can open doors for you as well. Do you think there's a field that we can look to that has gone through this before? Or do you think it's so unique now, the sort of level of outside interest and the need to have a paper before like you have a paper, that that kind of pressure that's on young graduate students these days that we're just like the storm, the weather conditions, we've never seen them before. And so we have to come up with totally new ways to do that. Or can we just like crib something from like, I don't know, neuroscience or cardiology or, or, you know, other fields that might have had this problem before. That's a really, really great point. So the clearly other fields have, have dealt with the kind of volume that our field deals with. We act like it's something totally new to the world, but no, the society for neuroscience meetings are just way bigger than, than any of our conferences. Right. And somehow they're able to, to deal with it. Yeah. That said, I think as a community, we we don't aspire to their publication model. Um, certainly they have pay to, to publish kind of models mm-hmm. and pay to read, which seems silly now that we have the internet, we can just post PDFs. Also, our field is moving so fast that we don't want to wait right. sometimes a year right. for, a, for a journal review to go through. And I think it's also important to remember that our, our field has actually moved forward amazingly fast. Mm. We've made so much progress. Uh, and certainly there are a lot of things to be improved upon the field, the publication model, but some parts of it are clearly working. And so hopefully we can we can keep those aspects. So maybe the conference publication model really, really just does work. But I think we are struggling to... We're struggling under the load of of papers, and I do think that the quality of the overall paper is going down Mm -hmm. in that regard. Mm -hmm. It's just when the system gets strained, you spring leaks, things get through that probably shouldn't. And so solving that problem, I I don't know, maybe we can learn from neuroscience or medicine, and maybe we need actual full-time editors to curate the proceedings of a conference or a journal. I think our field is really good at experimentation. So every, I think every conference there is a new, yeah, so the the incoming chairs decide they'd like to try out some totally new thing. And, and if it works, we keep it. If it doesn't work, we throw it out. Yeah. Well, it'll be fantastic and um, amazing to see who the papers they get through at ICML this year. It's always uh, a treat to be able to see the the quality of the research and the ideas that get curated. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. And if if you're an author of a paper that didn't get in, don't be offended. It's a super noisy process. Take the reviewer comments, the meta review to heart, and rinse and repeat. Absolutely. Jasper, thank you so much for your advice. And it's been amazing to be able to sit down and talk to you. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Jasper Snook of Google. Really amazing to be able to sit down and chat with him. Well, that's it for this episode of Talking Machines. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Neil Lawrence. Tune in next episode.